are in uh, Acts chapter 4 right now. As I'm sure many will know, the Gospels, uh, kind of round about, uh, there we are, here we are, talk about Jesus and what he did. They're a record of Jesus uh, as he was born, he lived, he died, and, uh, and, and, and rose again. It's a, it's a record of Jesus. Uh, then we come into Acts, and Acts is, well, it's a, a record of what Jesus continued to do, uh, he was raised to be with uh, his heavenly father, so no, long, no longer physically on the earth. But in Acts, we have this wonderful uh, continuing testimony of Jesus at work, but this time through the Spirit, by the Spirit, through his people, the church. That's uh, many of us here. Jesus continued to work. And uh, so here we are in chapter 4. But just in the lead up to chapter 4, things are going really, really well. The Holy Spirit has come filled the people of God. They have uh, started to gather together. Wonderful things have, be, have begun to happen. Thousands are turning to Jesus and uh, finding in him life and joy and future and so on. We have this wonderful account in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and onwards. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. There are signs and wonders kind of going on. Um, everyone kind of shares what they have with everybody else. They're meeting together. They're breaking bread in homes. They're enjoying the favor of all the people. And people are being added. So it's going really, really well. There's, there's good things happening in chapter kind of one, two, three. And in fact, that continues on into chapter three, as we've heard last week. Um, Peter and John are just on their way in the everyday of their life and a wonderful healing happens. They see this lame man, lame for 40 years, and they, they, well, they pray for him. In fact, they command healing. They say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And wonderfully, the man walks. There's an incredible miracle and everyone can see it and everyone gets really excited and everyone kind of gathers round. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. Some good things are happening. And in fact, we might be tempted to say, could we just stop there? Could that, that sounds good. Could that just kind of continue like that? Could we just stop there? But to do so would miss the scale and the scope of what God wants to accomplish through Jesus. He, it, he has nothing less in his plans than the transformation of the whole world, all the nations, even in their hostility to him. We heard in that psalm a little while ago, the nations rage. That God has, his plan is to fill the whole earth with his glory, even though it doesn't look like that right now. And here we have, well, there's a seed that's germinated in Jesus. And there's a little sapling which is kind of pushed up through the soil into this kind of dark world. And the storm is about to come. We've heard we need to be rooted in, this, in the truth of who Jesus is, because the storms can come and the darkness can come closing in. And we're about to see what happens when that takes place. What happens when the wind does begin to blow, when the storm does begin to come, when the darkness does begin to come closing in? What happens to this little sapling? This is the next part of the story as we read through Acts in chapter 4. It's a bit like you kind of read through the first three chapters and it's kind of nice music playing. And then, you know, sometimes you have that, the, record, the, the needle is kind of scraped, 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 scraped off the record. You get that? I don't know. No, it doesn't sound like that. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, nice music and then suddenly everything stops. The music stops. There's a problem, a challenge. And here we have it. We're going to read about that. The storm comes. The darkness presses in. They encounter opposition. 
Let's start in chapter 4. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they came, they called them again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. But after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man was miraculously healed and he was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father, um, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. 
What a superb account of what happens when uh, the, the, uh, the ground begins to get shaken, when the darkness begins to, to creep in, when the storm comes on this kind of sapling early church to see how they respond to opposition. We're going to focus particularly on verse 2, which says, The Sadducees were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So things, as we said, have gone pretty well up to this point. They get a bit stormy right now, but sometimes we do experience things go well. Hopefully often we experience things go well, and as expected, life seems good. You're seeing the fruit of your labor. You're seeing the results of what you're doing. God is working through you, your family, your friends, and people are turning to God. People are, are hearing what you're saying and understanding what you're saying about Jesus and the kingdom is visibly advancing. Maybe a miracle has occurred. It's wonderful. It's exciting at that point. Maybe there's even kind of maybe natural blessing or provision or financial provision or favor. And then the needle gets seemingly ripped off the record and there's that screeching sound in your own life and suddenly things aren't going the way that they had been before. Suddenly the, everything going right and everything seems now to be going wrong. Favor has turned to fury. Maybe people do turn against you in some way. Maybe they misunderstand you or reject you or what you're saying. Maybe you feel socially shunned or maybe you're living with the fear of these things. What might happen if I dot, dot, dot? And so this passage is helpful for me and helpful for us because um, we're really, as I read it, I ask two questions. The first is, why such opposition? Why were they so against this message? Why did this opposition come in the first place? And secondly, what can I learn? What can we learn about responding well when that happens to us? When we face opposition, when we face the darkness closing in, when we face the the storm beginning to, to blow in our lives, what can we learn from this in overcoming opposition? Well, the first thing, just to try and understand, why were the Sadducees so disturbed? Why such vehement, hostile opposition to their message? And the Sadducees, for those uh, that, uh, that are unaware, were this kind of aristocratic, religious, uh, priestly class. They, were, uh, they, they had money, they had power. Uh, Josephus, a first century historian, writes about them. He says, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this that souls die with the bodies, that souls die with the bodies. Their philosophy was you're born, you live, you die, the end. That was the philosophy of the Sadducees. You're born, you live, you die, the end. That's it. That's the worldview that they, they lived in. They were religious, of course they were. They believed in God, but they were also had this kind of secular idea that you're born, you live, you die, the end. In fact, many today would, would believe that, would see life in that context. And if you do, then your focus is this life. Your focus is, is what's going on right now. And the Sadducees were quite pleased with themselves because they had done well. Remember, they're rich, they're powerful. They had money, status. They even felt good about themselves in kind of worldly standards in some ways. They'd, they'd looked at themselves and said, we are good people. 
And again, that can be the way that many live today. You're born, you live, you die, the end. And in the middle, if you can kind of get all the ducks lined up, if you can have some success and some power and things can go well, then you've done as much as is needed. You have succeeded. But then along comes the apostles, and they have a different message that clashes with that. The apostles are saying Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. You see how these two worldviews are in direct conflict. It's not you born, you live, you die at the end. It's you're born, you live, you die. The resurrection to eternal life. This message suddenly comes bursting in upon the world. They proclaim in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And this wonderful gospel that they have, this good news, is that through faith in Jesus, through trusting Jesus, that our lives can be united with Jesus' life such that his life can count for us. His, his righteous life, the way that he lived, all the good things that he did, can be credited to us. That his death can be our death. That he took our sin, he took our wrongdoing upon himself, and he was punished in our place. That through faith in Jesus, we can be united to him, and his death counts for us. And then, his resurrection, too, counts for us, and is the means by which we are resurrected to eternal life. So it's that the story of our life is we live, we, we're born, we live, we die, we rise again with Christ. And there's a wonderful new birth that happens now, kind of invisible in some ways, it's kind of the inside out. There's a spiritual being birthed again, born, born again, the Bible talks about. But we look forward to when Jesus comes back and there will be a resurrection, a physical resurrection and a renewal of all things. The story, this is a radically different worldview that's being proclaimed in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. And it clashed with those who were invested in this life. It clashed with those who thought they'd won in this life. And suddenly they're hearing about the resurrection. This is not the end. You need to understand your life in a bigger context. There was a clash. These guys thought they were rich and righteous and ruling. And it was bad news to them. Because of that, you'd think it would be good news, but you can understand, I hope, how it could come as bad news. I thought we'd won. We don't want to hear this message. They were opposed to this message. They didn't want other people to believe this message. We're rich and righteous and ruling. But to the poor, to those who knew they'd failed morally, to those who were oppressed, this was a ray of hope. This was light in the darkness. This, this was wonderful news to them. And the thing is, the, the apostles had evidence. See, there's a lot of evidence, if you look around, that we're born, a lot of evidence that we live, and a lot of evidence that we die. But here were the apostles with some new evidence, some evidence that Jesus was raised to life. He was born, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And they'd seen it. They were proclaiming this not as a, as a message that they had heard. Someone told me, have you heard? They had lived with Jesus. In fact, they knew his mum, so they knew he was born. They'd spent about three or so years with him. They knew he had lived. They'd seen him. They'd watched him a few metres away be crucified. It's a means of definitely killing someone. They'd, they'd seen the blood come out of his side. They'd seen his limp body being taken down. They'd seen him being wrapped in burial clothes. They'd seen the stone covering the tomb. He was dead. And then wonderfully, they'd seen him alive afterwards, not at a distance. They'd face to face, they'd touched him, they'd eaten with him, they'd talked with him. They gave him fish, didn't they? Eat this. 
They, they poked him. He was alive. They knew he was alive. He was with them for days afterwards, not as a vague vision, but, but in the flesh. He had been risen to new life, and they were going to tell people about it, this new evidence. And as they did, some were wonderfully delighted, but there was a clash with those who were, had a different worldview, who were invested differently in this life. And to them, the resurrection seemed ridiculous. I don't know about you, but even some today would say, that's ridiculous, it doesn't happen like that. But they'd seen it, and they testified, and we have their testimony here, providentially kind of preserved. Through history, you can see how it's been preserved. We have their testimony that they'd seen Jesus, that which we've seen, that which we've heard, we've touched, we've, we've walked with this guy, we saw him rise again. We have this testimony. It's not just you live, you die the end. It's you're born, you live, you die, and then the resurrection to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And this was the message that the apostles proclaimed. So that's, I hope you can understand a little bit how that they, some were disturbed, some delighted, but some disturbed. And now I want to kind of draw from this some things that, that perhaps can help us as we share this message, as we live this message out. Yes, particularly in the details of it, but actually the whole of our lives and the, the way that we live and the things that we have to say yes to and the things that we say no to and the, how it will come out in our conversations in every aspect of our lives. And it provokes, yes, one, wonderfully uh, a delighted response, but we will also from time to time encounter opposition, that people will be disturbed as they hear this message because people are the same. So what can we learn in handling opposition? Well, the first thing that uh, helps me, and I guess we've already said it, is not to be surprised by it, as if something has gone wrong. I mean, it might have been that we've been clumsy or unthinking, and that, 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 of course that happens, and we need to kind of think that and take a step back and maybe apologize at times. But just because of the fact there is opposition or that people are disturbed about the things that we say and the way that we live the gospel out in our lives does not mean something has gone wrong. In fact, it can be an indication that we are, we're living as we should do, we're speaking as we should do, because we know this message will disturb some. And so we mustn't be surprised. And if you're like me, I kind of want everyone to be happy. I, I, I don't want people to be disturbed. I don't like disturbing people. But here I see that actually I can't avoid that. There are going to be times when out of love and care for, for God and for people, in loving God and in loving the people in front of me, that I'm going to need to disturb them. And you will need to disturb them in love. But there's no getting around it. We mustn't be disorientated when people get disturbed. In fact, the crucifixion of Jesus was the, the moment of, of greatest opposition to God. And yet it was the moment God was achieving the greatest thing of all the salvation of you and me and the nations of the world. It looked, it, he was doing it in the, in the, right in the context of opposition, right in the context of people being deeply disturbed. That was where he was doing the greatest work. And so sometimes that'll be for us. And we mustn't get disorientated when people are, are disturbed about what we say. And there's a furore perhaps in our social group or in the media or we're misrepresented or whatever it might be. Now, often God works. He does the most wonderful things through those times. The second thing that it helps me is that I mustn't be tempted to water down the message. 
Because again, we want, I know you're probably like me, just want people to be okay. I don't want to disturb people. And so I'm tempted to water down the message, almost like a doctor who doesn't want to tell someone the bad news and so, so kind of pretends that they're not ill when they are. I mean, that's, that might kind of short term, that might relieve the pressure a little bit and make people happy. But long term, it's disastrous. We mustn't water down the message so that people like it more or so it's more acceptable or more believable or less offensive. Like, oh, maybe you don't. Maybe there isn't a resurrection. Maybe it was a spiritual kind of thing. Maybe it's a metaphor for this life. No, there was a real resurrection, a physical resurrection of Jesus back to life. And each one of us, as we put our faith in Jesus, can look forward to that resurrection and the transformation of all things. It will happen. This, this is the message. But it's necessarily disturbing for some. I mean, it's, it's necessarily disturbing. It needs to be disturbing because of the things that it says, because of the problem that we have. Jesus died for our sin. He died for your sin. And that's a disturbing message. It's necessarily disturbing if you think that you're a good person. If you think, like the Sadducees, we've done well, that God kind of accepts us and loves us because we've been good enough for him. And this message says, no, you have not done well. It's disturbing to hear that. You're morally a failure in God's eyes. We need to disturb people with this message. We need to be disturbed ourselves with this message. This message necessarily disturbs those who think that by our own efforts, we can earn God's forgiveness and acceptance and love. If I can just pull my socks off, if I can just kind of do good this week, then I'll get back into God's good books. Well, this message necessarily disturbs that. It must disturb that. Because it's not by working hard enough or being good enough. It's by God's grace that we're saved. It's a gift because of what Jesus has done. His life credited to us. His, his death in our place. His resurrection in us, working in us. It's a free gift. You haven't got to be good enough. Obviously, there's life change that comes about as we're born again, but we must be disturbed by this message of grace. You, sometimes you, you, you can be reassured that you've communicated it correctly when people ask, kind of, they look at you blankly and ask you some very strange questions. It disturbs us. Grace disturbs us, but it's necessarily so. There's an exclusivity about this message. Man, mankind's, humankind's problem is that we have all turned away from God and we've sought salvation and meaning and purpose and security and hope and a future and righteousness and, and success in everything but God. That's what happened in the fall. People looked for these things anywhere but God. And the only place they can be found is in God, in Jesus. That is the only place that these things are found. And so we must be necessarily disturbed by the exclusivity of the gospel. And the disciples say, don't they, salvation is found in no one else. It's only in Jesus, because that's the problem that we've turned away from God. And it's only through, through God that we can be reconciled to him. He is the, the goal and the solution. The gospel will be necessarily disturbing to those who need to hear it most. And the third thing I want to learn from this passage, and that helps me, is that the, their focus is doing good. They're not out to cause trouble. They're not troublemakers. They, they haven't got into an antagonistic, combative, aggressive mindset looking for trouble. 
Just because people are opposing them, they, they haven't kind of um, fought back, they haven't shouted back, they haven't kind of got in people's faces and tried to kind of get their own back. That's not what's going on here. Actually, what they're doing is their focus is doing good. They've got into trouble for doing good. And it makes me think, uh, do you know, if, if we're going to get into trouble for sharing the gospel, let's get into trouble in the context of kindness. Let's get into trouble in the context that we've gone out of our way to be a blessing to the people in our city, to do them good, to, to, our, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbours. Let it be in the context of kindness that we get into trouble. Not that we're known as troublemakers or if there's any kind of thing we're kind of stirring up difficulty here and here. Let it be in the context of oh, those, those people, they're always doing good. That there was a man who had been wonderfully healed and everybody knew it. And th that was a problem for the Sadducees because they, they could see as well something really good has happened. So as we share the gospel, which will be necessarily disturbing, let's make sure we're doing so in the context of doing enormous good so that people can think, well, I'm disturbed by that. That's, that's a problem for me. But the context is kindness because that's the context for the crucifixion. It's the context for the gospel. It's the kindness of God that has come to us because he loves us even in our opposition. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. In our opposition, God reached out in love and care to us. So let's get into trouble in the context of kindness if we are to get into trouble for what we say and how we live. Let's get into trouble in the context of acts of kindness. And fourthly, as I, I mean, it's hard to read tone in this passage in some ways, but I, and you can look for yourself, but it seems to me that, that Peter is being respectful in the way that he's talking to these uh, very, very powerful and um, uh, these, these, these men that are around him. And the, the, he's... He's not having a go at them. He's, not, he's, he's, he's speaking respectfully, it seems to me. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, because that's who they were. He was being respectful to them. Again, there's no kind of combative nature or tone that's going on. He says, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to God? You be the judges. He's saying, we, we, we would like to do what you're asking us to do. We respect you and the position that you have and the responsibility that you have. We recognize that. And yet there's a challenge that we have in that we must, we must follow God first. And we hope you can see that and we hope you can understand something of that. There's a respect and a care that it seems to me that they are, um, they are operating in. And in fact, Peter was later to say, um, as he taught the church, he wrote to them, he says, In your hearts, honour Christ as Lord, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying you set, a, set, a, set, a, set apart Christ in your heart as Lord, you're going to live differently. And there's, there's going to be um, a, a clash and people are going to quiz you about it and ask you about it. And when they do, he says, be ready to do that, but do it with gentleness and respect, being careful with people and honoring others around you. Don't get into a kind of a fight with people. Be respectful. Maybe he learned that at that moment. Maybe the Holy Spirit impressed that upon him in just this moment. And fifthly, in overcoming opposition, um, quite obviously here, I'm sure that you, you don't need me to, to, to kind of highlight it. We pray 
As we face opposition and difficulty, as even the, the fear of these things, what do we do? We gather together and we pray. We pray for courage. We pray that words may be given to us in these moments. We pray to be filled with the Spirit. Again, we have to imagine the fear that must have been present there or the temptation to be fearful. These are the people that crucified Jesus. There's very real power that they have. Jesus was crucified because of these guys, because of what they did. They were opposed to Jesus and they got him crucified, tortured to death. And here they are threatening Peter and John, effectively saying, if you carry on talking about Jesus, we're going to crucify you too. You will die horribly if you keep on doing this. We're telling you explicitly not to do this. And they were kind of around them like this, powerful people. It takes supernatural courage in those moments to do the right thing not to give in to fear. And one of the ways I think that we, uh, we can know that is to get together and pray, God, would your spirit be in us? Would it be you working through us? So this is the spirit of God that reaches out in opposition, in love and care for those even in their opposition to him. This same spirit we need in us so that we can love people even in their opposition and through their opposition. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And finally, just as things, certainly that I'm gleaning from this passage as I read it, how can I handle opposition better? I don't like opposition. I, I don't like people being disturbed, but I, I, have a, I have a message that I really want to let people know about. How can I, how can I do that without, being, without succumbing to fear? And there's one more thing here that encourages me. The gospel will disturb some, but it will delight others. The gospel will disturb some, and necessarily so, but it will delight others. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Some opposed them, and often it's a minority that, that oppose the gospel, that oppose the message, and they make a lot of noise, and they make a lot of trouble. But actually, there are, there are thousands here that were responding, that, that loved what they were hearing. Maybe they were disturbed, but disturbed in a good way. Oh, yeah, I, I realize my, my fallen nature. I realize my moral failure. I, I realize that life must be more than just kind of you live, you're born, you die at the end. I kind of know in me somehow that's not the way it goes, and I'm going to take hold of this message. I remember when I did that, I remember when the penny dropped for me and I took hold of this message and I trusted in Jesus and suddenly the, the context of my life, the way that I saw my life, just, it's, it's like when you go to the cinema you know, you have, and it, it becomes widescreen. Do you, do you like that moment? I love that moment. You're sitting in the cinema and the curtains have opened and maybe it's adverts at the beginning and then it's like... And you, well, it sounds better, but in Dolby, you'd know that the context has been widened. Well, when you hear this message, it is just like that. It's now we live in the light of eternity, and many would delight to hear it, especially the poor and the oppressed, and those that know their moral failure, and those that people think are, are perhaps failed in this life. Now, here's, here's someone that succeeded for me, he's someone that can take me into, into an eternity of God's love and his presence in my life. So some were disturbed, but some were delighted. And that's an encouragement to me, to keep sharing the good news, the resurrection in the person of Jesus.
I could uh, invite the band back, I want to just briefly pray for us um, to be maybe end in just a moment with a song. Let's stand together. See, maybe you're not a, not a Christian. Hopefully you've heard, I mean, um, this is what we're trying to do. Maybe uh, we, don't do it in, we don't do it perfectly all the time, and we get it wrong sometimes, and um, for that we, we apologize. But we are, we are wanting to communicate a message that is so, so important, and we're wanting to do it with care and with love. And uh, I want to encourage you, if you've been disturbed in a good way this morning, and you're thinking, do you know what? This is, this is true. I've, I've had that cinema moment, and the, the context of life has been expanded for me now, and I see in Jesus that there's a resurrection, that it's not you're born, you live, you die, the end, but you're born for a purpose and a reason. You live, you die, and then there's a resurrection to eternal life. And I want to encourage you to turn to Jesus right now, if you, if you haven't known Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, let me encourage you to do that right now in your heart, to say to him, Lord, I, I, I believe this. I want to be one of the thousands, the millions throughout history who believe this, and I believe this now with all my heart, and I take hold of this, and I embrace this now for my life, that your death counted for me, that your life counted for me, and that your resurrection is mine too. And if you do that this morning, we would encourage you, come and talk to us about getting baptized. Something invisible happens at that moment. But there's a wonderful expression in baptism as we kind of show what has happened to us inside. But for others of us, Lord, I pray for, for those here this morning that are, are challenged with oppression. And maybe they've stepped out. Maybe things have not gone as they've expected. Maybe there's a fear that's creeping in. Lord, I pray you would release us from that. That we ask and we pray for your spirit to be in us. Like those early disciples, those early apostles, we pray, Lord, fill us with your Spirit to boldly declare this message. And God, we ask that you would stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus, that as we declare the good news of the resurrection from the dead, something that's going to happen in the future, that right now in the present, that we would see tasters of it miraculously as people get healed, wonderfully as people turn to you, to faith in you, repentance and faith. Lord, may it transform our lives so that people ask questions. Lord, and would you help us in those contexts when there's a bit of disturbance, Lord, to just keep on loving and reaching out and believing you for the building of your church and the extension of your kingdom. We ask this for, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Lord, we thank you this sapling that pressed through the earth is, is filling the earth in every nation, every tribe and tongue. Lord, and we pray, fill us with your spirit to be part of that. In Jesus' name, amen.